0: This is The Waves. This This is is The the Waves. waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. This is The Waves. Hello, and welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and catching up with old friends after two years that felt more like 10. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate, and I've got to say, it, it must be the season of giving because the powers that be here at Slate, or maybe maybe with a little help from Santa, have given me the thing that was at the very top of my wish list this year, a reunion episode with two of my very favorite thinkers and podcasters. So this week, I'm joined by Nicole Perkins and... Marsha Chatlin. We haven't actually recorded together since April 2020 and I know a lot of new listeners have come into the fold since then. So why don't you two reintroduce yourselves?
1: Hi, I'm Nicole Perkins, a writer and podcaster. And I have missed the waves so, so, so very much.
2: (laughs) I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University and a constant source of hot takes based in Washington, D.C.
0: Both of you had big years in 2020 and 2021 in spite of the global tumult.
2: Give us the rundown. What have you been up to? Well, I will start. In this order, I got a Masterclass subscription, and I started making a bunch of recipes from Thomas Keller. I bought a house during the pandemic. I won the Pulitzer Prize in history, (laughs) which sounds really weird to say, but that was an incredible moment. And I adopted a baby boy. My son, Michael, came to us on April 1st of 2021, and he kind of erased the pure garbage year of 2020 with his giant
1: cheeks. Nicole,
0: tell us about your year years.
1: Uh, I started a new podcast called This Is Good For You, and that's where I talk to people about the things that they do for pleasure, just for themselves. Then I went to Dublin, Ireland as a special treat to myself because I had published a book in in 2021 in August. Uh, It's a memoir called Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. Those are the pretty big things that have happened. (laughs) I
0: mean, your book also received a lot of props from very well-known people. You were part of Roxane Gay's book club. I mean, the book itself is amazing. I, too, bought a house, actually, Marsha. So I spent a lot of the pandemic winter getting into interiors, doing a lot of furniture scouting. I now have a lot of opinions on accent lamps, which is not something that was part of my personality before, but now occupies a large part of it. Something I did at work that I was really excited about more recently was an episode of One Year, one of Slate's um, history podcasts. It was about this fertility clinic that was exposed in the mid-1990s for stealing women's eggs. They were taking some women's eggs, eggs from some of their patients, and putting them in other women's bodies without the consent of the patient whose eggs they were. It was my first time writing an audio script. It was a lot of fun. My brain was extremely stimulated, but I have to say I've missed this group. So much has happened over the past two years that I wish I could have processed with you too. Did you miss the waves? You know, I'm sure there were good things and bad things about saying goodbye to this monthly show. How have you been feeling about that?
1: Well, you know, I missed being... Exposed to news items that were kind of outside of my usual areas of interest. And I definitely would have loved to talk about the whole All Too Well, Taylor Swift, Jake Gyllenhaal bit of gossip um, and people's reaction to it. I am fascinated by who gets to share their personal lives and who gets to create art from it without criticism.
2: Oh, that's interesting. I miss the fact that all of you are so thoughtful in your responses to things during the like worst parts of lockdown i felt like i wasn't really talking to people some of it is the depression of the moment but i felt like the places in which i could go back and forth about something and think through them were just kind of shut out and so i missed that conversation We're going to take a break now, but when we come back, I'm excited
0: to hear from you guys on some of the major stories from the past two years, so stay tuned.
2: This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I wanted to take a second and welcome all of our new listeners and all of our old ones too. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. And while you're here, check out our other episodes, like the one from earlier this month on the future of abortion access and Roe v. Wade.
0: All right. A few things have happened since last we met, to put it extremely mildly. Marsha, I know you've tweeted about this from time to time that, you know, there would be a news event or some sort of cultural product that made you think, man, I really wish we could unpack this on the waves. So what has happened that you really wish we could have done an episode about?
2: Oh, there's so many things. So I was particularly missing all of you after the January 6th insurrection because, just the framing of all of it, right? There's so many elements of it, but the the participation of white women, the lionization of Ashley Babbitt, and the whole kind of world that was available to people on television about, you know, what extremism looks like in the United States right now. I think that would have been such a thoughtful conversation from this group. And in similar veins of people who have been galvanized by extremism, um, QAnon has also become this space for women and conspiracies. And that kind of dovetails into some of the Anti vax, anti mask stuff we've seen. And a lot of it has been under the cover of like mothers and, you know, women united against, um, you know, the government as well as authority. So I think that would have been an amazing conversation, probably really depressing. And then we would have pivoted to lighthearted fare, like uh, the Lulu, <laughs> the Lulu Rose scam. I know that Nicole would have been compelled by a lot of the housewives scamming issues that we've had with erica jane allegedly and um jen shaw allegedly on the housewife franchises and i have a lot of feelings about mommy war stuff that i see on the socials and i would have been very curious for us to have a conversation about the um nighttime doula tiktok war that exploded a few weeks ago about employing like someone to help take care of a baby at night and why that inflamed everyone's feelings <laughs> on social wow, media wow i didn't even know that this happened it was it was kind of a black twitter thing too nicole were you
1: aware yeah, of it yeah i saw that it yeah was a it's a lot um, This woman, you know, she posted some tweets and I think maybe a picture or two of her nighttime doula and was just talking about how much of a help it was. And then people just attacked her for saying that was such a, that having a doula is a luxury item. Some people aren't able. I think that the reason she posted that was to show how accessible it could be and how helpful it is and how everyone should have this, you know, this ability to have someone come in to help because. The immediate time after having a child is very difficult, but people were just so resentful and just angry. It just really went to some ugly places. I was actually very surprised. And I feel like I've seen everything on Twitter, <laughs> but that really surprised well, me. You know, part of it, if if we could just dive into it, I guess we are talking about it. The discourse was really
2: interesting because it went from like, this person's so privileged to this work is exploitative. And that any work that takes you away from your own family and community that you have to do, that that is, you know, exploitation. And then people who are trained as doulas and midwives um, said, you know, we are trained professionals who advocate for a good wage. Like, we don't feel exploited. And then some people say, well, be honest. Yes, some of us are. And it was like bananas. And I think that... You know, when I read stuff like that, it's it's always from a perspective of feeling kind of one toe in, one toe out. As a, someone who parented and did not give birth, I try to like to shut up about people talking about the experience postpartum. And at the same time, you know, I, I started parenting a child on day three of his life. So there's some aspects of it that I can really relate to. And then I just throw away my phone. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's always the right answer.
0: Marsha, you actually mentioned the two topics that I would have really wanted to talk about on The Waves that I think are related, QAnon Women and uh, Lularo. spurred in my mind by the Lula Rich documentary because before that I wasn't really aware of exactly what Lularo was. But I think both QAnon and multi-level marketing schemes... They have a lot in common. They they sort of function through disseminating misinformation, largely on Facebook, uh, misinformation, low quality goods, whatever. Like both of them going through Facebook, and they're kind of seizing on these gendered anxieties. But whether it's like real or manufactured scarcity, um, there's like housewives you know, living in these post-industrial towns where there are very few jobs and no affordable childcare. And yet also they're like encouraged to take on that caregiving role in their families in addition to they need to make money. And then on the QAnon side, there's like white people scared of what happens when their votes aren't the only votes that count. Um, And I just feel like the Venn diagram between people who fall into these two really exploitative cultural products is like nearing a circle, probably, or there's at least a lot of overlap um, there. And I, I would have loved to do a whole episode on that. Nicole, what's a topic that you wish we could have talked about?
1: I would have loved to talk about the constant generation wars that happen, millennials versus Gen Z, and how they seem to be very white woman focused. I mean, I'm not a millennial, I'm Generation X, but it still just seems very specific to white women, like talking about parting your hair on on the side or certain kinds of bangs or the jeans and things like that. And then I'm looking at my friends who are black women millennials and they're just like, I have no idea what they're talking about. You know, and then I'm like, I I have no idea what you're talking about. And so these kinds of this is so millennial and it seems just really to be a very white woman thing. I would have liked to have talked about that and figure out like, why, why is that? Why is this so narrow in its focus when talking about the things that make up a generation? And I would have liked to examine that a little bit more. Definitely that LuLaRoe, LuLaRish thing, because I had never heard of it at all. And I had no idea what people were talking about. And I was like, this is such a thing that actually needed to be a documentary, like like what is this? I have no idea what that was. So that was really interesting.
0: Are there generation wars happening specifically with Black women, like with hair or with other trends or something like that, that don't have to do with the middle part versus side part?
1: Not really. I don't think so. I mean, there are a lot of things that, you know, we could see that women younger than us were doing. But I think because Black women's hairstyle it's so fluid and so many women can wear a hairstyle where well beyond their years, I guess you could say, you know what I mean? Um, That we don't have a lot of things that are like super dated beyond like a roller set or something like that. Like, you know, the, uh, that kind of thing. Um, So style and like, uh, food and things like that just all kind of blur. The lines blur in generations, I think, for, for Black women. This is such an interesting point that you make, Nicole, because I'm trying to think
2: of, like, the thing that you're talking about is, like, a kind of nostalgia that, you know, like, gives birth to the, um, you know, Full House reboots and, um, you know, like, jeans and, like, the, the like, white tennis shoes with the thick soles. I, I'm trying to, like... Visualize what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. And this question of like, where those generational wars exist for black women. I can't think of a single place in terms of cultural products. I guess there could be like attitudes towards, you know, gender roles or attitudes towards respectability issues broadly. But that thing that you're talking about. I have such a hard time, like, visualizing it. I think that's so interesting.
1: Yeah, because even now, like, Megan The Stallion, um, she's been wearing French rolls, this hairstyle, French roll, when she dresses up and stuff like that, which is something that was popular when I was a teen in the 90s for... Us as teenagers, also our moms, also our aunties and things like that. So it was just like whatever was popular was something that all of us wore at the time across our whatever our generations were, you know, in our families. So then to see it come back, we're just kind of like, oh, yeah, we were all rocking this style. So there's no like super delineated thing of this is ours and this is ours and this is ours because we were all wearing it. And it's just it's just been really interesting to see these kinds of uh, breakdowns, like with women on TikTok, uh, like millennial women on TikTok, making these whole like musicals to shame Gen Z and be like, you're gonna get old too. And it just seems like millennial <laughs> women, I love y'all, are just having a problem with aging right now. And I just I just want to take them to the side and say it's okay.
0: <laughs> As a millennial woman. Uh, As a millennial white woman, I feel like my peers are misinterpreting changing styles as a referendum or insult on our styles, which is not how it has to be. Millennial women were really attached to our side parts. And now people are parting their hair in the middle. And like one person made a TikTok saying middle parts look better than side parts. And now all of a sudden, like we're sort of cranking our outrage up. Uh, to 11 and feeling like, oh, now you're alienating and marginalizing me because you've said that the way I part my hair is no longer like the hip way. When, you know, either change your hairstyle or just accept that you're not, you know, you don't, you're not wearing the TikTok trend, which your friends probably are, if they're watching TikTok, they're watching it on Instagram anyway. So like, you don't have to be, young and i think you're right nicole that so many other things are happening a lot of millennials were in our early 30s now are mid 30s and a lot of things are happening we're having kids or our friends are having kids parents are getting older it's it feels a little bit like we're entering middle age in a lot of ways and i think this parting of the hair is like the acceptable way that we've quote unquote acceptable way that we've found to deal with our angst about that all right on the flip side is there anything that's happened that you were glad we didn't have to talk about? Something that you thought definitely would have been a... We would have thought, okay, we have to talk about this, but that you would have been
1: dragging your feet on. I am so glad that I did not have to parse through the good friend, bad friend donating a kitten story <laughs> mm-hmm. for the public. Because, <laughs> I mean, I did maybe like one quick tweet or something like that about it, and then I let it go. But it was just um, a really incredible story in, like, the original meaning of incredible as in just, like, <laughs> this cannot be real. This cannot, like, this is, this has to be a lie. Um, And unfortunately, it seems to have been true or true enough. But I'm glad I did not have to make anything too public Um, about my thoughts. Can you imagine if your text messages
2: among your friends had to be <laughs> used in a deposition or were subpoenaed, I would be done for. Like, I have certain friends after that, <laughs> that article came out that we had to come up with, like, a plan <laughs> if something happened to one of us. <laughs> what kind of, like, our group text? Because, I mean, that was part of the story. Like, the kind of shit you talk on a group text. And, you know, guilty as charged. And I was like, wow, I really do need to throw away my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I felt that way, too, Nicole, and and just to clarify for our listeners, we're talking about who is the bad art friend, a piece that ran in the New York Times Magazine in October, um, where, you know, one person made an altruistic donation of her kidney, another person who was sort of loosely in a circle of acquaintances um, thought she was being cocky about it or seeking attention and then ended up writing a short story in part. Um, inspired by this person who donated her kidney. Anyway, even just having to explain that. None of it makes sense. (laughs) It doesn't. And it made me feel like I, since that, as has happened with so many stories um, during the pandemic, it sort of became amplified beyond what it should have been in terms of its effect on like online conversations. I felt like we probably would have thought that we had to cover it and it would have been very unwieldy to discuss and. Probably wouldn't deserve a segment. The things that I'm glad we didn't have to talk about were a lot of the sort of men behaving badly stories or men committing sex crime stories. Um, I definitely reached a point, and not even just with the waves, but in my own writing after the Me Too movement and Kavanaugh and Trump and everyone else in the Trump circles, you know, Roy Moore, and where I felt like I can't write another story about sexual assault. Um, it was, I was very frustrating for me. Um, I felt like I put a lot of myself into my work and I would get very emotionally invested in these stories. And at a certain point I kind of felt like what is left to say about some of these men. It's funny that I say that because I actually did do a waves episode about Andrew Cuomo (laughs) a couple months ago, which I was happy to do because I wasn't having to talk about it all the time when we were doing the waves more regularly. I felt very resentful when a man would do something terrible or there would be a development in, you know, the Harvey Weinstein case or something, and we'd have to cover it. And it was like, you know, why are you making us talk about you? It felt like they were hijacking the topics of the
2: episode. Marsha, what about you? Any non-white leads on The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, the Matt James saga. I, I mean, where to begin? This guy goes on The Bachelor. He's the first Black Bachelor he ends up with this young woman who decided to dress like a Confederate like princess as part of her sorority party. Oh yeah. And then Emmanuel Acho has like a sit down with them. It's like the worst everything on television. Will they reconcile? How racist is she? I mean, everything involving the bachelor and bachelorettes, like move towards a more diverse lead uh, structure after Rachel Lindsay has just been the worst thing that's ever happened so Tasha as the lead Michelle season is happening right now i mean it's just so cringy and painful that i'm glad i didn't have to subject people to my discomfort in discussing it a lot of them that i picked were about television the netflix show marriage or mortgage where people in nashville have to decide whether to buy a house or have an expensive wedding everything about it made me so uncomfortable and it would have been great fodder for us. And the Sex and the City reboot, which I did watch the first two episodes, and I was filled with just all sorts of discomfort. <laughs> so those those uh, highlights from popular culture, I'm glad um, I was spared. Yeah, it's hard because sometimes the discomfort makes for
0: the best segments, you know? Like it makes, th- the Sex and the City reboot makes me d- uncomfortable too in a way that... Many recent TV shows have been making me uncomfortable and that I'm talking specifically about Botox and its effect on women's faces and how we're like no longer able to see women emote on stage. I was watching Tampa Bay's B-A-E-S on Amazon, which is a reality show about lesbians in Tampa, Florida. These are like 20-something-year-old women who have so much Botox that they can't move their face. It's preventative Botox. I think I I would have wanted to do a whole show on preventive Botox and its effect on pop culture and our ability to read human emotion, because I think this is a topic that's going to get more and more relevant as more women in their 20s start having Botox. Anyway, that's a topic I did want to talk about, not (laughs) one that I didn't. Um, All of which is to say, if we were still on the waves together, Marsha, I would have forced us to talk about all the things that you just said. I would have (laughs) have (laughs) happily done it. (laughs) All right. We've got to take another break now. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the culture we missed in 2020 and 2021.
3: Oh, hey, we have a special announcement for you today. Slate is having a holiday sale. For a limited time, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off for the first year. It's a great deal. Think of it like this. You pay $10 or $15 a month for your music and streaming subscriptions with Slate Plus for less than $4 a month you can get. Member-exclusive episodes and segments from shows like ours, as well as Slow Burn, Amicus, Political Gabfest, Working, all of those. No ads on any of our podcasts and unlimited reading on the Slate site. And best of all, you'll be supporting our show and Slate's journalism. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash thewavesplus and Again, we're giving you $25 off your first year as a member through December 29th. So sign up now at slate.com slash plus.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans.
4: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: So I'd love to hear from you too. Has your understanding of feminism changed at all over the past year and a half? Nicole, what do you think?
1: I think I have been more... Um, open to broadening um, my views of feminism and making sure that more voices are heard and that we are not all just um, kind of saying the same thing. I feel like there needs to be more diversity in the experiences of feminism because I think for me, the most important aspect of feminism is choice and having choices and being able to make a decision maybe away from what the majority of feminists are doing, but still enjoying the the opportunity to, to make that choice. When we're talking about things like women's sexuality, that we give space to um, those who are asexual or those who are demisexual or something like that, so that th- we can hear more about their perspectives. Um, so I would like to hear different perspectives more often, I think, when it comes to talking about the ways that feminists navigate the world.
2: Um, I think that the one maybe feminist issue that has, for me, kind of crystallized into like the real limitations of it is this idea of feminism in its most ideal form provides this kind of big tent, kind of like what Nicole was talking about, for a diversity of experiences. But when we try to use a feminist lens or perspectives on contemporary issues or challenges, it's always fascinating to me to think about how we're coming from a place of this vision, but we're like missing the mark. So for example, I was listening very carefully to some of the conversations about COVID and reopening and this issue of the disparate impact it was having on um, moms, right? Like these stories in the New York times about the mom on like four zoom calls. Like she's doing zoom school with her kids. She's doing her job. And, you know, she's like taking care of an elderly family member and her husband's in like the one spare room in the house working peacefully. And he's getting, you know, like a few hours in on the Peloton and she's like screaming in a closet. (laughs) And so when I, you know, when I would read things like that, I'm like, whoa, you know, this is a feminist issue about work and about family and roles. And at the same time, I think that a lot of, you know, people's fears about going back into the workplace is about privilege and the kind of advocacy position of like schools need to reopen for the greater good of kids but I don't have to go back to a school and I don't have to work in a school but some other women have to like teach my kids and be the school nurse and we know that like most of the lunchroom staff are women and the bus drivers, like these are the people who have to absorb our kind of general idea about, you know, risk and proximity and work, the whole thing. It's hard. And I don't think that as someone who can be very like a little too certain all the time how I feel about everything, (laughs) um, I think that's called obnoxious. I just, the debates about COVID and vulnerability and risk and work, I think really, were a wonderful way to just challenge our ideas about making feminist arguments that might be about ourselves and what we want to see versus the greater good and really like pushing ourselves to imagine that it's not so easy.
0: And that definitely was an issue. One of the few issues that I've come across in recent memory that really felt like Good people are making good arguments on both sides, you know, which is hard because it's a a very intractable and important problem that is, like, impossible to solve and is creating a lot of tension in a lot of communities. Speaking from a place of non-Parenthood, just from the outside, really interesting to see people try to work through these problems that were challenging their own beliefs, under extreme stress, too, which it's really hard to make informed decisions under extreme stress or or you know generous decisions under extreme stress. The thing that I've noticed over the past couple years in discussions of feminism that has really stuck in my craw has been what I believe to be an overuse of the sort of girl boss critique of feminism. The term girl boss in particular has been used to criticize women who are you know, making choices that are good for themselves and that maybe like elevate them within male systems of power and white systems of power, um, but that don't necessarily help other women, but they're cloaking their own success in the rhetoric of feminism. So that's basically what girl boss, that term has, has been used to describe. But in like the past year, I've seen it used almost as a sexist slur by leftist feminists in a way that I think is very unseemly and unproductive. You know, right now we're at a point where particularly white men control a lot of spheres of power and make, are making a lot of decisions. And there would be something good about having gender equity because you know what gender equity leads to? A better distribution of Power, like economic and cultural power, which would help a lot of women. If women were seen as capable of being the breadwinner and if women were seen as strong leaders, there would be good trickle down effects from that. We're in a society where women have to work. And so, wouldn't it be nice if we had jobs, if women had jobs where they made more money and had more power? That's basically what I'm trying to say.
2: I find this fascinating. The the girl, because I because I can't get enough of a girl boss takedown. But I always see it in terms of you know like the CEO who you know the bad behavior CEO stuff, which is I think those are valuable too, right? But it doesn't always apply. Yeah,
0: so I feel like the criticism of you know hollow feminism has now become hollow in certain ways itself. Nicole, I know if we had been on the air over the past two years. I would have loved to talk to you about dating life during the pandemic because I wasn't doing it, but I was paying a lot of attention to other people's experiences about it. What was it like for you? What did you learn?
1: It was and is horrible. And it is, <laughs> it is, it is somehow even worse than before, Um, (laughs) you know, everything is like pre-pandemic and post-pandemic and pre-pandemic wasn't great, but now it's even worse. This has been some of the emptiest experiences of my life, of my dating life. You know, you would think that people be like, oh, life is short now, you know, they're like face-to-face with their mortality and they would be more willing to be open and vulnerable and honest and just kind of like live life to its fullest, but they're not. And obviously this is just my experience and the anecdotal stuff from info from, you know, my group chats and everything. But it just seems like as women dating men, they're just even more internal. They're even more like sheltering from their emotions and their feelings. They're just like so closed off and hard to read They've lost even more social skills that social media hasn't taken away. Like it's just been really difficult. They don't even want to finesse anything. You know, they just kinda of want to show up and be like, okay, I'm here. Let's let's go. And it's like, uh, hello, you gotta warm the pot up a little bit. Like this is just like, what's going on? Um, so it's been really discouraging, actually. It's been weird. But there have been some times where some some guys that I've, you know, tried to talk to or get to know a little better. They they were Rushing things and in a different kind of rushing way and like wanting to like immediately skip to the let's just curl up on the couch and have a lazy Saturday kind of thing, which is not my speed, which is not my vibe at all. I'm not very cuddly at first. Like I have to like feel very comfortable with you to get to that stage. And some of these guys wanted to get to that stage like immediately. And it's just like, it's weird. So let
2: me ask you, I... Again, the sociological um, elements of this are really (laughs) kind of mind-blowing. So there are two things that I'm curious about. From what I remember about dating, that dating is often a kind of like deep desire to submerge, like the low-grade depression or anxiety you're going through at that particular moment, and you fill it with like stories about stuff. Right. So like you go on a date, you talk about like the person at work you don't like and the trip you went on, like the stuff. That like gets in the way of like deeply knowing someone is part, if I remember correctly, of the dating dance until there's like greater intimacy. So do you think that like with COVID and people doing fewer things, there's less of the kind of superficial stuff that's part of both the charm and the dread of dating? And then do you think people are so starved for human touch? that there's this kind of recalibration of like pacing and kind of feeling out where a person is in terms of physical intimacy.
1: Yeah. I think we're all having issues with trying to figure out how soon is it to touch and how can I touch and that kind of thing. And I think a lot of people have kind of regressed to wanting that cuddly Freudian mommy, you know, kind of like thing, right. Which, you know, that's, that's fine. Um, But I guess because there's still not the right amount of communication to get us to that point, it just feels really jarring. And I do think that because people aren't getting out as much or they're not having these kinds of work discussions or things like that, um, they don't have anything to talk about. So then you just end up looking at each other or, you know, you want to talk about pop culture stuff, but then there's just still a lot of, awkward silences or just like really weird communication happening. And I try not to really talk about what I do for a living because it's, I don't know, uh, men just don't, they can't seem to wrap their minds around it. Like, uh, you know, I'll tell a guy that, you know, I'm a writer and he's like, oh, so what else do you do to earn a living? And I'm like, well, that's what I do. This is how a this is where my money comes from. And they just have a really difficult time because it's not something nine to five or it's not steady enough or because it's a creative pursuit. They just don't think it makes money, right? So when I do finally start to tell these guys more about what I do and I try to open up about it, and then they like, they Google me and they're like, holy shit, you're famous. And I'm like, I'm not famous. I'm nowhere near famous. You can just easily find me online, right? I would say three out of five. Guys disappear after that. Once they see that I am, I don't want to say someone, but once they see that I have more going in my life or that I'm an ambitious person or that I'm doing something that you can find online, I don't want to say it intimidates them because I don't know what they're thinking because they disappear. (laughs) It just really, it's been really odd navigating that where someone finds out that you are. A person with goals and that you can find them online or on a podcast or in, you know, these different magazines or something like that. And then they disappear. And it makes me feel really, honestly, really weird and sad. Like, like it goes back to this idea that women are not allowed to be more than a man. And, you know, in the sense of like heterosexual relationships, obviously, and just like professional career disappear. Like, I was dating this guy who worked at a library. And when my book came out, I showed him that the book was listed in the Brooklyn library system. And then he was just like, oh, wow, that's so great. And then I never heard from him again.
0: What? (laughs) You'd think that that would be a selling point.
2: Like, look at this amazing woman who wrote this book. Are they afraid that you're going to write about them? Like, I just... Does everyone think that, like, your life is like sex in the city and that you have to date in order to have content?
0: <laughs> like, yeah, no. you're just mining for. You have serenity. no separation
1: <laughs> and that everyone's so inspiring that you will write about them. Yes, but sometimes they want that to happen, right? Oh, um, yeah. so Little do like they this, know you're
0: actually going to talk about them when they ghost you.
1: Yes, <laughs> right? And, you know, like, this one guy, um, we had had a really good time together and he, like, leaned down and whispered in my ear, you can write about this. And I oh, just, Jesus. Oh. Sorry. Yeah. Goodbye. Kill.
4: <laughs> so
1: I've had a little bit of all of that where they tell me not to write about it or they're afraid that I'll write about it or the ones who like really try to show out and think that I'm going to write about them because, you know, we had a nice time or whatever. Anyway, um, so it has been a mess. It has actually made me real, feel really lonely and sad a lot of the times, and, you know, and also then you have the experience of watching other people who are like, oh, we met, online and we went out for a month and now we're getting married because life is short, you know? And it's just like, oh, okay, well, fuck you. But it's just like, <laughs> so it's just been really weird. And I've been taking a lot more social media breaks um, to avoid that. Um, and also just to kind of like get my mental health back together, you know? Um, Cause it's just, I don't know. It just made me feel really, really sad and lonely.
0: That sounds really trying, and it actually echoes a lot of what I've heard from single friends, especially, yeah, the part about, like, people not knowing what to talk about or people just feeling like they want comfort, so trying to accelerate the relationship to the let's just watch TV and cuddle and smoke weed, which is, like, that's not the whole point. Well, I would think that the whole point of a lot of dating is wanting to, like, have fun together and, like, do things as much as you can during a pandemic, so I want you guys to tell me about one piece of culture, good or bad, that you spent the most time talking about during the pandemic, or maybe that you spent the pandemic wanting to talk a lot about.
1: I was late to this, but Ted Lasso on Apple TV, the um, series starring Jason Sudeikis, and he is this American guy who gets brought over into London to coach a soccer team. He has no idea what he's doing. He's never taught soccer, coached soccer or whatever. It's a comedy. It's very funny, but it's also like kind of dark because you, you realize that he has this like toxic positivity thing going on where every, like he's very optimistic and stuff. And, you know, it's really sweet, but also you, you realize it, it's a coping mechanism for something that's tragic happened in his life. Um, and so it's actually a really beautiful show. I was surprised at how great it was. And, but I really wanted to talk about something that most people were not talking about was like to see this mediocre white man come into this new industry that he has no idea what he's doing and yet gets chance after chance after chance in order to, you know, perform his job and do his job well. And like everybody loves him because he's so charming, even though he has no idea what he's doing with his job. And so I just think that there's just really something to that. And no one's talking about that. No one's talking about how emblematic that is uh, when it comes to white men at work. Um, But Anyway, it's a great show. I love it. He was specifically
0: hired to do a bad job, right? And then the t- kind of twist was that he ends up figuring out to yes, do a good job.
1: Right. And he wins everybody over with, you know, with his, his feel-good attitude. And I think it's just so, that's what happens a lot of times if a guy can come in and just be like, make you laugh and make everybody smile. You just forgive him everything. So you could forgive the fact that he even ruined your diabolical plan to ruin your ex-husband's team favorite team, Right.
2: Marsha, what about you? I actually will say, you know, it started with Tiger King. And I can't remember if I told y'all this on our last show, but, you know, I've been to that zoo. So I used to live in Oklahoma. And when we first moved there, we used to just drive around the state. And we were going to a real zoo and we went off the wrong exit. So we (laughs) (laughs) we thought that zoo was the zoo. And we're like, this is weird. And so that was like all I could talk about. Cause I was telling people like, yeah, I've actually been there and it was really creepy. And I was confused why there was all this anti PETA stuff there. And then I realized we did not go to a sanctioned zoo. We went to an illegal zoo. Um, but I, that was part one of the pandemic. Part two was um, only murders in the building on Hulu, which was a delightful watch. And the thing I liked about that, a lot of people liked it. A lot of people enjoyed it, but I have been stuck in the true crime podcast vortex for many years. And the thing I liked about this show, it was doing two things that I think a lot of TV shows and movies are failing to do correctly. One, it was a show about New York City that actually had people of color. And there was a way that they really kind of walked through some of the kind of generational issues about where we are in terms of being an inclusive culture without demeaning it and without being like so heavy handed sex in the city reboot. So like it, it did a really good job of saying like, what would it be to create this world where there are people of all sorts of racial and ethnic backgrounds. There's a lot of different ways that we can frame character without being on a high horse and without, you know, kind of making fun of, you know, these woke times that require X, Y, and Z. So I love the intergenerational spirit of it. And I love the skewering of those of us who spend too much time listening to true crime podcasts.
0: We're coming up on the end of the episode, unfortunately, but before we go, let's give our listeners some recommendations. I'm going to start because mine is pretty lowbrow. I'm going to recommend Sheer text Tights. I swear this is not a paid advertisement if your algorithm looks anything like mine as like, yeah, I guess millennial woman or whatever, um, you know, you've probably seen someone dropping a kettlebell into a pair of pantyhose or something like that. The novelty of those ads caught my eye, but then I saw the tights were really expensive and I was like, no, but then one of my colleagues recommended them and said, they're actually really good. The classic black tights, are often on sale for like 40% off. So I got them then. And I think they're still like 50 bucks or something, but they're truly indestructible. And I, in wintertime go through a lot of pairs of like sheer black tights because I like the way they look. I've recently started buying thicker tights. I, I experimented with white tights, um, which are fun, but I really wanted that sheer black pantyhose that I'm not going to ruin with my like scraggly winter feet or my fingernails and sheer text tights are those tights i don't know what they're made out of i'm pretty sure i don't know if it's like leaching some sort of chemical into my body or if like someone had to kill an armadillo to make it but um you can't ruin them so highly recommend <laughs> what did you guys bring to the table hopefully it's something a little more brain stimulating than that
1: no oh, but good, maybe <laughs> so much pressure. Um, so candles, I have just really been trying to create an atmosphere of peace and just like coziness at home. Um, and so my candle collection has exploded. I, it's just ridiculous. It's out of control. So, um, uh, I would like to recommend two places, Brooklyn Candle Studio and Posh Candle Company, I love both of those websites. They have an incredible range of scents. Posh Candle Company is a little quirkier. Brooklyn Candle Studios, a little softer, more subtle. I love them both. I have a candle going almost as soon as I wake up. Uh, it's probably not good for my sinuses, but I just, I don't know. It's just like, I just need a little a little piece. Let me pretend I'm on the beach or let me pretend I'm in, you know, a nice little Japanese garden, just being quiet. So that those are my recommendations, those two candle companies.
2: Marsha, what are you loving right now? I 10 out of 10 recommend being Michael's parent. <laughs> um, and if you don't have the opportunity to, that's fine. The one thing I will say, uh, but seriously, I recommend taking a look at the children's section of your bookstore. If you have not been purchasing children's books in a while, they're not terrible anymore. They're like, they're not all racist. And like, have strange gender stuff. They're so lovely. And um, our friends were very, very kind in sending Michael books uh, when he first came to us. And, you know, there's books like Julian is a mermaid about a little boy who wants to be a mermaid and everyone doesn't have to be awful about it. There are books about feeling your feelings. There's books about all the ways that families are comprised. And so I just think that everyone has a great opportunity to, Think about how for generations to come, we don't have to be as terrible as we are today. So I highly recommend just perusing and really enjoying the excellent new content in children's books.
0: Is it the men that Nicole is dating? Is it too late to give them the Feeling Your Feelings book? Because
2: I feel like other generations could possibly benefit from this. If you have dated Nicole, you may be entitled to a free book and an opportunity to do better. (laughs) All
0: right. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate it, review it, wherever you get your podcasts, and consider supporting it by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like no ads on your Slate podcasts and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the plus. And if you have feedback for us or ideas for future topics, you can email us at the waves at slate.com. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place. Marsha, Nicole, it was such a joy to be back with you too. Oh,
1: so much fun. I had so much fun. This was great. Thank you.